The Legacy of John Williams. Celebrating the music and the art of Maestro John Williams. Hello everyone, this is Maurizio Caschetto of The Legacy of John Williams and welcome to a new episode of the LA Studio Legends series on The Legacy of John Williams podcast. My guest today is one of Hollywood's leading flutists who performed on over thousands of films and television shows under many legendary composers. She is John Williams' piccolo player since 1990 and performed on such scores as Hook, Jurassic Park, JFK, The Patriot, AI Artificial Intelligence, War Horse, The BFG, and the Star Wars sequel trilogy, among others. As a session musician, she has recorded with Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, Paul McCartney, Michael Jackson, and many others. She is also an accomplished classical musician, performing both in symphony orchestras and chamber groups. She is currently principal flute with the Los Angeles Master Chorale and also member of the Pasadena Symphony. So let me welcome flutist extraordinaire Geraldine Rotella. Buongiorno, Jerry. Hello, and thank you for being guest on The Legacy of John Williams. Hello, Maurizio. Happy to be talking to a fellow Italian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so heartwarming to have you on the show, Jerry. Uh, as you complete, we can say the flute section of my series of interviews with musicians, <laughs> as in past episodes I had your fellow flutists, friends and colleagues, uh, Louis de Tullio, Jim Walker and Sheridan Stokes. So before we started recording, we were actually talking about this. I mean, the, the personal relationship and the bond that there has always been between all of you flutists. So you always felt like being part of a family, really. Um, but before diving into that, Jerry, I'd love to start talking about your musical upbringing as you are part of a very distinguished musical family. Your father, Johnny Rotella, was a very accomplished and renowned woodwind player, session player, and also a songwriter who played for Benny Goodman and Tommy Dorsey. And then he wrote songs which were performed by Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, Rosemary Clooney, Doris Day, and many others. So, Jerry, tell me about your extraordinary family and how it was to grow up in, in such an environment. Yes, my dad had an amazing career. So I grew up watching him be so dedicated and passionate about being both a live and recording woodwind player and a songwriter. He was truly inspiring and he taught me about the freelance lifestyle. No two days were the same in our house. But I'd like to talk about my mom, Anna Graziano. She was also an amazing musician in her own right. She played piano, accordion, sang, tap danced, and shared all of that with us. She grew up herself in an amazing family of musicians as well. Her brother was Jerry Gray, who was Glenn Miller's arranger, and he became his own band leader and songwriter. He wrote Pennsylvania 65000 and String of Pearls. Mom's sister, Agnes, was Artie Shaw's copyist, and her brother, Tony, was a professional accordion player. So that household in Boston and then New Rochelle, New York, was full of life and music. Mom was really key in providing our family with song 
dance, and great Italian food since she was an excellent cook. She <laughs> kept our family of seven well taken care of. Mom was brilliant. When we all left the nest, she went back to school and studied composition again and wrote a beautiful piece called Interlude for flute and piano that we performed together. And it's now being played in the flute concert world, which is kind of cool. Wow. Um, so having these two wonderful musicians as my parents was a huge blessing. They started me on piano at five and I played till I was 11. And I know for a fact that having uh, early piano training is a huge factor in acquiring a great sense of pitch that's essential for playing any instrument, really. Mm. I've always thought it was important for anyone to just start on piano. That's really a good thing to be doing. Yes. Then when I was nine years old, our school offered a music program. And I came home saying I'd love to play the cello. It sounded so beautiful. But my folks said they couldn't teach me that. So they offered me the flute. <laughs> and dad brought one home for me. And he opened the case and I fell in love with it. He became my first teacher using a very methodical way of teaching just a few lines at a time. Don't go too fast and there's no hurry. I really enjoyed it. And we had an excellent music teacher and program in our elementary school as well. Mm -hmm. The good thing was that I enjoyed it, but I also was leading, unlike some of my colleagues, I was not that that musician that as a child, I was completely buried in music so much so that I didn't have a normal kid's life of, you know, all those other things to do. So I was still in Bluebirds, Campfire Girls, singing, singing, doing a lot of singing. And um, I was good in school. I loved my classes. I uh, had, a, I would say, a well-rounded kid's life. And the flute was really an aside. And so I was kind of more like a late bloomer with all that. The flute was just fun. And then went to college. And, oh, and my folks said, now put your flute away. Now you're going to college. Now you have to do something real. <laughs> going, well, you're both musicians. You know that music is what's real. And they yes. both said, no, no, you need to put that away. And I don't know why I obeyed them. I think mean, it was kind of weird at 18 to go, okay. So at 18, I did. I put it away. And then I was taking a music appreciation class and had an incredible teacher, an opera teacher, who loved everything she was teaching us. And I'm sitting there going, why is my flute away? And I, uh, I asked the, the student next to me, hey, I think I want to be a music major instead of what I've been doing. And she looked at me like I was crazy and said, you can't just like be a music major. You have to be really great. So <laughs> I went to the department chairman. I said, I'd like to do this. He said, well, you have to audition. So I said, OK. So I auditioned and, and they, um, they said, you know, you are really not at college level. But um, but we hear something in your playing. So why don't you spend the summer and go audition? I mean, go practice and come back and let's try. So I did. I practiced all summer and came back and they said, wow, you've improved a lot, but you're really still not at college level. So why don't you just sit in the last chair in the band and, um, you know, let's see where that takes you. So there I was last year in the band, just kind of watching everybody. And I befriended the first flute in the orchestra and the first flute in the band to see if they could help me get up to snuff. I have to say, I chose well. They went on to incredible music careers themselves. Nora Shulman became the first flute of the Toronto Symphony, and Ann Miller moved on to London, where she became a flutist, and then she started her own music publishing company called Scores Reformed, where she provides orchestral parts to London Symphony and many others. They were very uh, helpful in my growth. They mm -hmm. took me on in addition to my flute teacher, who was um, Luella Howard, who was the first flute at, at Fox, actually. 
So I started studying with her. I practiced my, I just practiced like a fiend. So I literally just worked my way up. Um, I have to backtrack because when my dad was teaching me, he was very specific about how you, how your embouchure should be. And he would say, you know, you're doing well, but you need to look in the mirror, make sure you're using it right because it doesn't look like your embouchure is correct. So when I studied with Luella, I would ask her, what about this embouchure? And she said, oh, you know, that's how you're playing. Just leave it that way. And I said, but I think it's going to hold me back. This is important. And now it sounds like I'm going on and on, but it's this is an important thing. It ties into what Louise said. Mm -hmm. I said, um, this is going to hold me back if my embouchure is like this because it's not functioning at its you know, I know I, I'm going to be limited. So I went to um, the new teacher, Gretel Shanley, who was so awesome. And she said, um, I said, I want to change my embouchure. And now I was a senior ready to graduate college, but I had gone that far. She said, your sound is your sound and pitch is really good, but changing your embouchure is going to give you more flexibility. And I said, okay, I'm starting from scratch. So I went back to the head joint all alone. Like my dad told me <laughs> as a teenager, I mean, I could have avoided a lot of stuff, but I didn't. So now here I am at, you know, 21 or something starting over. And um, there I was with the head joint. I redid my whole embouchure. At that point I graduated and then I went to Sheridan because now my embouchure was really pretty, Gretel had got it really pretty set. Um, and then I went to Sheridan because he's a master of explaining how all of this stuff works. And he wrote this great book about it and everything. So I went to Sheridan and he worked on it with me and got me more flexible. Mm -hmm. He was the flute teacher at UCLA. When the Berlin Philharmonic was in town, he was able to present a masterclass with the amazing international flutist, James Galway. That opened a huge door for my studies. I played for him in a masterclass and then went on to England, Scotland, and Switzerland a number of times to study more with him. My parents were elated and became fans of his as well as attending all his concerts here in town. And he even used to come to our house and hang out with everybody. He's very influential in my flute career. Um, during this time and for the next 10 years, really, I was able to then study with William Bennett, the principal flutist of many London orchestras, and, and Marcel Moise, who was their teacher and our grandfather of this generation of flutists. Um, then I eventually became the flute professor at two universities here, and I'd often have them come out to teach. This was really a very inspiring time of my flute life. After my studies with Sheridan, then I went to Louise. And, oh my gosh, <laughs> so she says, so she starts me off literally spending an hour on one note. We would spend an hour just taking a sound and getting all the low harmonics. And she said, you're not hearing what I'm trying to get you to hear. Um, and we would work and work and work. And finally, all of a sudden, when these colors would start coming in, um, I go, oh, that's what you're talking about, you know, but literally an hour on one note. We would do that often. And uh, so now I'm excited that my my lips are finally getting this thing. And I'm, you know, because I made that change so late. Then she throws the big wrench and says, you know, you really should play piccolo. And I looked at her like she's crazy. I said, I can't play the piccolo. I said, I'm trying to figure out my flute embouchure still. And she <laughs> says, no, the piccolo will really help what you're doing right now. And she said, you have such a, a great sense of pitch and sound. And um, most people don't have that. And you're gonna, you can transfer that to the piccolo. 
And that will be your ticket to becoming a freelance musician in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Because if you can play piccolo better than everybody, <laughs> a, little bit of, a little bit of a command there. If you can play piccolo better than everybody, and she said, there is an audition coming up. She said, what you should do is you really get going on this. Win, go win that audition. And I said, all right, okay, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm going to do that. So I got it. My piccolo, I practiced like a fiend, and I went and auditioned, and I won that job. Wow. It was amazing. She's brilliant. I love her so much. I could go on forever. <laughs> no, but but it's so so lovely because besides the fact that, uh, as I was saying when we were starting, uh, this wonderful sense of almost family that there is between people playing the same section together for many years, but also the fact that it's something that it's always a give and take in the sense in you give something, you take something from your colleagues. And, and it seems to me that you, Louise Sheridan, more than other players who played in, in other sections with other instruments, were really kind of having some great time together. And, and especially I was thinking about Louise and Sheridan, you know, starting also to teach when they were still very young. Yes. And, and Sheridan was Louise's teacher and then Louise became your teacher. So there's this wonderful sense of lineage. And, and, and also, I guess that influenced also the way you play and the way you develop your own style and sound. Absolutely. Well, you know, it goes back a little bit farther. Actually, when I was 12, my dad brought me to Louise when I was playing because he he just had, he's, I'm just, and I remember it was spontaneous. I was at home at 12, just playing. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to take you over to Louise de Tullio's house and have her listen to you. I go, oh, okay, <laughs> like what? What am I going to play? And so <laughs> I think I should, I should just have her check you out and see if you're on the right road, if you should be playing the flute or not. I went, oh my gosh. So I, you know, I took like a, a box suite or something. I, I took the box, yeah. And um, go to her house. So she was maybe in her 20s. So I go and I and I played for her and she gave me the stamp, told my dad, yeah, she's doing okay. You can let her play. So Louise and I go back to that. That's wow. what that started, yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's a pretty amazing. I mean, and to think about this sense of, of almost like sisterhood, we can yes, say. absolutely, absolutely. And with Sheridan too. And then Jim Walker is actually. I mean, I had a woodwind quintet, and he did coach us a few times, and that's how I got to know him when he got the LA Phil job. So we would go play for him, and so he heard my playing there. And then I remember casually saying something like, oh, we had just recorded uh, actually The Rite of Spring with Pasadena Symphony and I was playing piccolo. And so I um, I told him, I said, well, if you know anyone gets sick when you do The Rite of Spring, you know, let me know because I'm, you know, I can do it or something. I just made this comment. And sure enough, the Phil was doing The Rite of Spring and someone got sick. <laughs> so they did call. And so I got to do that with them. And then I became their sub. Um, and it was always kind of last minute, like Miles got sick one night and Ernest Fleischman called and said, hey, can you come play piccolo on Mother Goose Suite tonight? I went, okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
so this kind of was like a good preparation for yes the red light you know when we record it's the red light and um there was a lot of last minute come and do this come and do that mm-hmm. and dad was dad was because he was a recording musician he did and as my teacher he did really emphasize sight reading playing in tune and in time and i and he would just throw music at me start here start here get your eyes here, move your eyes. Your eyes have to be over there, over there. And his whole thing was about sight reading. So I actually loved sight reading. I love taking up A2 books and just sight reading more than practice, way more than practicing. I thought sight reading was a lot more fun. And so he trained, that was good training, I thought. I guess so. I mean, I mean, I guess also it's uh, a way to prepare for, for studio work and also to the fact that you have to be, if, if there is something that I learned by doing all these talks with, with you, studio musician, great studio musicians, is that you have to be ready to perform r- literally anything at any moment, you know, especially when you, you work with the upper echelon of composers like John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith or James Horner. Very different than the orchestral stuff. I was preparing to do orchestral. Through school, um, I was playing in the orchestra and stuff, but I was also doing a lot of everything else. And I was actually a Beatle maniac and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I was really into pop music. I really was into pop music and jazz because I, I was living with my folks. You know, my parents were very much into jazz. And so going into the orchestral world, my dad would give us these, um, he would get this brochure from the recording academy where we could order order albums. And so I started ordering, you know, Debussy and Brahms, and I'd get all these albums, and I just thought, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful. So I did go, I went to college, I did the orchestral route. That's, I thought I was going to do that, and I was auditioning, and I was, I'll never forget Louise with this one audition, I was auditioning for San Francisco, and I, out of really hundreds, I was in the last five, I think. So I know I got pretty far, which made me happy, and I called Louise from the audition, I can't believe that I got this far. And because my lessons with her were scary. I would get so nervous, so nervous. She's such a perfectionist and she would not compliment. And so she was really a tough teacher. And um, I would, so I called her from the audition. I'm in the like final five. And she said, I know. I said, what do you mean you know? She said, I could hear it. I just didn't want to say anything until you, until you did it. (laughs) But you know, that's that she had that same Italian tough thing that my dad had too. Mm. So anyway, came time to do orchestral auditions. I decided that actually flying around the country, finding an orchestra and living in another state away from my family, because I really mm. am a family person. I said, no, I love Beethoven, but I don't want to be away from my family. So, and things are starting to happen in LA for me. I was getting this this little job and that job and whatever. Then once I once I got that Pasadena job, mm-hmm. the Piccolo thing started really opening up, and so I got the Piccolo job for Animaniacs, which is that cartoon show, and Piccolo in the app and the operas and the ballet and all that kind of stuff. So, anyway, Piccolo kind of became my my world.
you started to be John's pickle player around the, the early 90s. Is 1990, that Hook. Yeah, with Hook. Okay. The reason why I got on John's stuff was uh, Louise had moved over to first and Jimmy was in there too. And they were looking for um, a piccolo player. So at that point, I kind of was up to bat. I had been playing with John on on some of the other movies earlier. Yes, I, I saw a few, you know, in the list that you sent me, I have it here with me. We have E.T. the Extraterrestrial, which is yes. another major, <laughs> yeah. major piece of yeah. work for John. And I see also Indiana Jones in 1984. Indiana Jones, oh yeah. I do distinctly remember a specific cue. There is a crazy piece of music, you know, among the many. There are kind of, you know, six piccolos or something like that. You know, for a chase scene, uh, the minecar chase is yes. called. Yes. Do you remember yeah. anything about that piece? I, just, I remember just being mostly, um, you know, in awe of this orchestra that was like a Ferrari. You know, it happened in that movie and just sitting in the section with Dave Shostak, Susan Greenberg, Louise and Sheridan, it was a wild chase. And I was so impressed with these people. Mm -hmm. I think Vince DeRosa was playing at that point. Uh, yes, I, remember I think he, he was still John's first yes. horn, yes. And I remember, I really was mostly, I don't remember what happened for me. I just remember how I was playing or what. I just remember going, what on earth? This is incredible. You know, the horns and the these flutes that are, it was like you're, and this is true with sitting next to Louise and Jim in uh, Jurassic Park and other movies we did together, Hook. I guess Jurassic Park and Hook were the two big ones where yes. what happens is you get in the, what's that, like a tailwind when you get mm -hmm. behind a truck or something and you're driving yes. and you, you get in that place, you know, you get right in the right spot, zoom, you just start going. I don't know how, if I think if I practice those notes, they probably wouldn't come out as well, but getting in that tailwind that's what it was. So yeah. exciting. Yeah, and the level was so high. I mean, the level of the musicianship was just extraordinary. I mean, uh, like you said, uh, it's, it's a Ferrari of an orchestra. can you say about this cue? I mean, we just heard what kind of level you have to bring uh, to the table and what kind of music you have to be ready to play at any moment uh, with John Williams. You were mentioning some of the great players who were there in this uh, soundtrack, yeah. uh, you know, Vince DeRosa on the horns and uh, 
I think Emma Richards was was here playing the xylophone, that crazy lines that are doubling the piccolos. I mean, another extraordinary musician. Uh, but this piece is also an example of John's ability in writing in a virtuosic manner and writing very difficult part for you, for you guys. Uh, so, what do you think are his his peculiarities for when writing such difficult music and and what are the challenges for you musicians to play such difficult music? Um, when we play for John, we know that he knows our instruments so well and what they can and cannot do. I feel we musicians are his colors and he is painting. Mm -hmm. Somehow he transcends the individual instruments and the players and creates his own sound. Mm -hmm. It never feels like I'm like I'm playing the piccolo. There's just a bigger good going on. And if you jump onto the sound, you do transcend the obstacles of the instrument. Even when he asks for something different in whatever we've played, it doesn't seem pointed um, as a personal execution type thing. You know, it's not do this or do that. It's just you're part of this sound. Whereas most composers would say, you know, can you play that softer or shorter or louder? It becomes a dry request and it's more difficult. Um, but when John talks, it's in a gentle manner and he evokes um, the reason we should add our special ingredient to this whole mix of what he's creating. You said uh, you, you became John's piccolo player yes. in 1991 for Hook, which is another incredible score and a score that almost all of you musicians who played on that always uh, mentioned this as a very remarkable experience. What was the experience on that? Being in that spot for a score that calls for very highly virtuosic playing for, for, from the flute section. Hook was what we didn't, we didn't have our music. I heard Louise mention this also. Most of our careers, it was, you didn't have the music. You really did have to have that sight reading skill that dad really pounded in. There's no time to worry or fret or anything. You just literally have a job to do. It was hard. It was very, very hard. Very, very hard that they drew that. I know you have that cartoon. They actually drew, our, our colleague drew a cartoon of the orchestra falling out of our chairs. And John, you know, is standing there conducting, you know, like, okay. And let's saying, tutti. <laughs> yeah, tutti. And everybody's out of their chairs laying on the floor. <laughs> Hook was definitely nine million notes, very hard and very exciting. And then there were some beautiful moments. And then Louise had that great solo. And Jim Thatcher, oh my gosh, Jim sounded stunning.
that was my first movie where I was like officially in that chair and sitting next to them couldn't have been better. You know, they are, they're really dedicated and kind hearted and, you know, there's this camaraderie and they, everyone works together and I'll do this, you do that. Let's, let's just get this done. And Mm -hmm. we did it. Yeah, we did it. Yeah. And the plane is absolutely marvelous. I mean, for all the talk that one could, could do, about, uh, of course, the virtuosic nature that uh, your instrument is often, you know, put um, at the forefront, you know, because the, you have to play lots of difficult music, lots of many notes. But at the same time, I think it's the way there's a, there's a person behind. And, and I had this thought recently about how John's music really pushes you to be a better musician in oh, many yes. ways. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, because even if you're playing all those millions of notes, you know, somehow, somehow when you're practicing them, they don't even come out as well as they do when you get there. Like I said, you become part of this John Williams machine, you know, not machine, that's cold. It's not John Williams, uh, just the sound. It just happens. It happens because he really evokes this movement. The molecules in the room work differently. Everything is different and you just are flying. You just fly. And, you know, he also like, even like at the end of a cue or on a chord or something, he he has this body language and this, this weight that his hands and his face show or he'll even kind of open his mouth in a way to just take this breath and he holds the sound and the whole orchestra and the room just vibrate at, at this frequency. And mm-hmm. you just crawl into all of that. That's for the slow, beautiful stuff. And then for the fast stuff, you know, he's just so clear, but it's really his manner is kind hearted and it's brilliant. He's just the perfect combination of, of uh, intelligence and heart put together. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we can play so well for him.
and this is another thing I'd love to touch with you, John's way of speaking with you musicians, the John's way of communicating with the orchestra when conducting and when recording, because uh, you know many of you told me that he doesn't uh, micromanage the player, saying do it like this, do it like that. He he lets you free to to express your own playing. The important thing is what is on the page, of course, and and what he's conducting, but. Basically, you are on your own to bring your own best. He does express, you know, on the page those adjectives, because I, <laughs> you know, I, yes. I've been keeping track through the years of all the words that he puts on those on the page, because he is able to use exactly the right word, exactly what he wants. And the other thing is, he's very calm. He's he's calm and he's got this dignity, and he just relays greatness just this you just get this greatness from him and you know that he's hearing every tiny detail but he's also put on the page exactly what he wants and he's able to do that i don't know there's not any other composer i know of that uses the colors and the types of words that he does um, uh, he seems to have a very sharp ear you know almost many of you musicians told me that he hears everything really even it doesn't matter if you are you know the soloist in that moment, or if you are fourth bassoon, with all due respect, of course, it makes you feel like you're part of the of the ensemble. You you have to bring your own bass, and and if you you know maybe did a, maybe a little sloppy note, you know he notices that. <laughs> he's kind. The thing is too is he's kind hearted about that. You know it, it's he it's not the you know Toscanini or whatever. Like it's not the tyrant type of conducting. He's kind hearted, and we says, well, let's just do this again. You know he's mild mannered, and you know it's like being a good parent practically. You know you just want to. You want to elevate the people around you by just having that air of let's just do this. You know, it's coming from a good place, and mm -hmm. we of course we respect him so tremendously, and we want to do our very very best. So when we walk in there, no matter what it is, no matter what score, what type of score, whatever, we did a happy birthday theme and variations for somebody. I um, think it was dedicated to Seiji Zawa or something yes, like that. It was. It was. Thank you. And uh, that was terrifying. He wrote one variation for the piccolo that like the whole orchestra stops and you start on the low D and go screaming up into pianissimo to a high A. <laughs> <laughs> And we did not get our music ahead of time. And you know what? Sometimes it's better. A lot of times it's better not to, because you mm -hmm. you just do it. You just do it. You know, that that's the place you want the players to be, probably, you know, to give that that reaction, that instant reaction. Because if you think about it, the way he writes music for for the films, uh, of course there there's a deep, very conscious work of of you know thinking about it and, and making this a very laborious project, but at the same time, I think for him is very something very instinctive. You know, he reacts to what he sees on screen, and he writes music about what he's feeling. So he probably wants the same thing coming from the players as well. Otherwise, if you know too much in advance what you are going to do, 
maybe you start to to act differently, I guess. But uh, yeah, no, you definitely play different when you're when you're reading when you're reading it than when you practiced it. Absolutely, but we still prefer. Um, it's still with some of these things that we have to do. It's it's wise that they're giving us the music ahead of time. <laughs> and and I guess for the other major movie that you did a few years later uh, with John and, that, and that's Jurassic Park. Again, another tremendous uh, work for for the whole flute section, especially Pickles, because I guess again, uh, as he, he did in Indiana Jones, there are a few cues where he has maybe two, four, three piccolos playing. Screaming piccolos, Jurassic Park. That was really, really fun. And there's a funny story about that afterwards. So we, we did it and um, my husband and I decided a little bit after that, some years after that, that we were gonna go take a break from, you know, just take a break from music for you know, mm -hmm. just a vacation, short vacation. And we were gonna go to Hawaii because, you know, that's our favorite place. So we thought we would just go. So we went there. It's our very, very first time to go to Kauai. And um, we said, why don't we, we've never seen the island before. Why don't we go take a helicopter ride and do this and this. So we get up in this helicopter. Mind you, we're going there to take a break from Hollywood music. We get in the helicopter to fly around the island. And the first thing they play is Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're in the helicopter flying over Kauai. I didn't know it was filmed there either. So we're flying around and here I am in the speakers of the helicopter yeah. <laughs> screaming those piccolo notes again. I was going, oh my gosh, I thought we were escaping for a little bit. <laughs> And then, so it turns out it was filmed there. And um, now also ironically, we ended up, well, a few years ago, we got a house in, nearby and there's actually Jurassic Ranch. The where they filmed the Brontosaurus scenes is literally like around the corner. <laughs> and um, so now when we take our grandkids there, you know, we drive down the highway, they start singing Jurassic Park when we pass it. So Jurassic Park's in my life all the time now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seems that it's one of those cases where John and Steven Spielberg, of course, probably touched something deeper in the collective consciousness and the collective imagination. And to see also, you know, even today, people, you know, recognizing that music and, and having goosebumps when listening to that gorgeous theme. Uh, that, that is it really speaks about, you know, maybe it's tied to what we were saying before, like, you know, having a reaction to what he sees, putting that emotion on the page and, and then having, you know, top level musicians playing what he wrote and expressing that feeling of awe and wonder that, that the music really, really absolutely awe and communicates. Those are the words, awe and wonder. And when we did Jurassic Park, you know, we would look up at the, because here's this new CGI Tech, you know, technique they're using with these dinosaurs. So we're excited to see it and we're turning around and trying to see something. But um, 
it was black. They didn't want us, you know, they do that. They'll, they'll just be there. They don't want anyone to know until the film's yes. released. So we're watching the actors, you know, their faces are reacting and the music's incredible and you don't see it. So when we finally saw, when we finally went saw in the theater, you know, with the dinosaurs and it's, you know, he did awe and wonder. I love those two words. I like that. Yeah. But then there was also the, the, the terror side of things uh, uh, in the movie and in the music. I mean, the horror of the scenes with the, with the velociraptors and the Tyrannosaurus Rex and, and John brought some incredibly scary music for those scenes. I mean, and and th there is some highly virtuosic parts for, for all the flute section, all the woodwind section. I mean, and I guess for you and, and Louise and Jim, it was a very tough job to bring that baby home. I mean, uh, there is particularly one cue. I mean, among the many, uh, I do remember when the Jeep is chased by the Tyrannosaurus Rex and you can hear all this shrieking notes in the piccolos uh, and it's and it's you playing i mean you can hear yourself very clearly in the soundtrack <laughs> Jurassic Park is certainly a great score in the sense that um, it's another testament of John's ability to write in a highly virtuosic manner uh, in for, for these scenes, for these action scenes. But at the same time, I think also it's, it's great for you musician to have such a challenging music to perform, and not just on a pure technical level, but from what you have to bring as musicians. I mean, it's difficult music to perform and you have to be ready for it. And I guess it can be also stressful for the musician to, to be at that high level of performance anxiety, <laughs> I could say. But uh, so I'm wondering if sometimes you had to split with, with your colleagues uh, some parts, some highly difficult moments or stuff like that. His music is, I think, so well written for our instruments. He understands our in instruments well that I don't think about splitting things up. I can't even recall splitting those up so much. His, for me, his writing always, we just know what we have to do and we do it. It's come up in, uh, but our, the camaraderie in our flute section on other composers and other things where it's, you know, cr not crafted quite as well. Yes. Then, then it's like, then we have to do it. But John knows how the flutes and piccolos work really well. He mm -hmm. also, you know, as you know, <laughs> I don't know if he's writing less notes because the films just don't require as many notes. The scores we've done have had a lot my chair has become a lot of alto flute, bass flute, 
Mm. A, a lot of alto and bass, beautiful, beautiful parts written with French horn, clarinet, and English horn. So he's been writing that combination, that quartet or trio often. And so my point being, he knows the instruments so well, the colors he can get. And this new color that he's really using often of alto, French horn, clarinet, English horn is really beautiful. I do notice John's music becoming more reflective, more quiet, more restrained perhaps. Uh, in scores like The Book Thief, for example, beautiful chamber piece. Uh, but also if you look at the last Star Wars movie, uh, episode nine, The Rise of Skywalker, uh, I'm reminded now of a piece from that score. And, and I think it's not even in the movie. It's something that he wrote for the soundtrack album as a piece. And it's a very noble, almost nostalgic uh, composition, you know, for strings and flutes and horns very, very heartwarming, you know, it's something unexpected, at least for me. I mean, that that piece actually feels like it was his, uh, a capper to the series. Very, very heartwarming. You hit the nail on the head because we all, I think I know that piece that you mean, that cue that you mean, um, you know, of course we know him, you know, for all the action stuff, but it's this stuff right now that's reflective and gorgeous, gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, I just want to say that Heather Clark sounded stunning on that uh, Star Wars beautiful theme. I was also thinking about John's career, you know, the peculiarity of his career. 
even at this moment of his life. I mean, it doesn't matter what is the project that comes his way. I mean, it could be either a film score like Star Wars or Indiana Jones, or it could be a concert piece that he writes for one of his great musician friends. Uh, it doesn't matter the commission. Uh, for him, it's all about the music. And it's such a joy to see a man of his talent, you know, having so much fun with music at 90 years old. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It very much feels like for him, it's not like everything is said and done, but, but it's still ongoing. It's still ongoing. I think it's because, you know, I think, honestly, I think there's a lot to having a jazz background yes. or being around jazz or having, being around that atmosphere or whatever that gives you a little bit more relaxed attitude than just the straight classical thing, you know? Absolutely. I think that jazz was so key in his uh, build up to become the, 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 the composer, the musician he is now and that he became later because it, and you still hear some of those jazz uh, yeah. you know, things in his own music. When I mean, you know, catch me if you can. I mean, it was, oh, how amazing oh was gosh. that? <laughs> Dan, Dan Higgins. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Another phenomenal musician. Another All of them, Mike Valerio, Alan Estes, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a great score. But, you know, going back to the jazz thing. So, so John's dad, you know, was Johnny Williams, you know, all this. And, um, played with uh, Raymond Scott. Yes, that's was where, a drummer. And my, dad, my dad played with Raymond Scott. So oh that's my goodness. How John and dad, yeah, dad played with Raymond Scott on East Coast. They're both, uh, my folks, you know, for East Coast. And um, in 1948, like John, they moved to Los Angeles because dad exactly. had come here with Benny Goodman and then decided he was going to come here. Then my uncle Jerry Gray, Jerry Gray had his own TV, uh, radio show here. So he brought mom and dad out. And that's when John came out too. And ironically, John lived one block away from us. Wow. He, lived, he lived in Otsego and we were on Hesby. He went to North Hollywood High and I went to North Hollywood High, obviously, <laughs> many years later. But uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. We're like in the same geographical location. But but, but that's the other great thing about uh, LA. I mean, it seems like, you know, he's a huge city. There's a lot of, you know, Lots of things going on, but the music community seems very close knit together, especially the classical environment, you know, and probably back in the day, the 1940s and 50s and 60s, there was a lot of, uh, you know, crisscrossing between musical environments. You know, you could play jazz at the night and then the following day you were playing the symphony and then you do just some, you know, film sessions or the record dates or, you know, you have to be, you know, 360 degrees of, of, you know, music making. All kinds of music. Dad, Dad actually played with uh, with Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. So in 19... <laughs> wow. Yeah, so 1964, you know, here's here's our Italian Catholic father and, and my sister and I are in a record store and just going, um, looking through stuff. And we see, and we just looked at the album, turn it over, it says, thanks to Johnny Rotella. And we go, Johnny Rotella? <laughs> The mother's invention, they're crude. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's so great. But I think Zappa, I, I mean, I think uh, Mike Lang was telling me that he, yeah. he started doing first dates again with, with Frank Zappa. <laughs> Zappa was a, was a musical genius. Yeah, musical genius. But uh, yeah, no, in LA, you have all of it. You really do. It's, it, it's everything. 
you can hear and, and play everything. And dad, my dad certainly did all of that stuff. For me, I, I actually was just, I played classical. I don't play jazz. Um, I know Jim Walker's amazing at that. And Sheridan was very, was really good. He's got a great ear and he can um, play all types of things too. I have a couple of questions about uh, the BFG because oh. I know that that was a very, very fun, very lovely for the flute section again. Yes. And, and the music is amazing. I mean, I think the music that John wrote for that movie was, it feels like he was writing a ballet or a, or a children's opera, no, no, something like that. And there is a piece in the score, which again, I think he wrote that specifically for, for the soundtrack album because I don't think it is in the movie. Oh. It's it's a flute quartet. The dream chart? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about it because I, I think that was something special. That was special. That was fun. First, I have to do, um, you know, I have to give a big compliment to Heather Clark, who became the next first flutist for John. And he very he really is enjoying her playing very much. She just nailed it on that score big time. She walked in, it was virtuosic, it was nine million notes and just uh, lots of style. And she came in and walking into Louise's chair, she really did a great job. A big shoes to feel. Yes, exactly. No, she did a great job. And I have to throw a funny story in about she's sitting there playing all that virtuosic flute cadenzas and crazy notes and all this stuff. And Steven Spielberg is sitting on the floor next to her with his camera. He, cause he, he would do that. He does come in and film, you know, all the time, but I've never seen, I think he's been next to me. He's been right, right here next to me, like looking down the section or, but he's a little bit, not like in our face, but he was literally at her feet, holding the camera at her while she was playing that. And wow. I mean, I think that is miraculous that she could even play the flute at that point. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. So the quartet, John decided to try this thing, this effect. We were called to go to um, MGM to Sony and he spread us out, just the four of us around the room. We weren't sitting next to each other. We were way, like way apart from each other. And we had these flourishes uh, separated out. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a piece of music that went measure by measure. There's just these flourishes. And he would point to one of us, play your flourish, point to the next person, play your flourish. And we just go around pointing at us, play this, play that, play that. And so we would on cue from him, play something, whatever we had written in front of us, had no idea what it was going to become. So we didn't hear what it was going to be until uh, we heard the recording and then how they, how they layered it and did all this stuff with it. Yeah. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Those flutists, you know, Heather Clark and Jenny Olson and Ben Smolin, that was a fabulous quartet. Thank you. 
you know, listening to this, I was really thinking about also what you were just saying about how the piece was put together. And and this is a testament of John's creativity, not just as a pure musician, but as a composer, but also in the way he likes to experiment with also with the recording technique or with performance techniques. And it's really something that is probably not very much a knowledge in when when one someone speaks about John Williams, but it's definitely there, absolutely. And this piece uh, is a marvel to listen at. It's almost an etude, like I was saying. I mean, it could be a competition piece or or an audition piece for flutists around the world. It does stand alone. It didn't feel like that when we were doing it, you know, because you know we each had our own thing to do, and we we're just concentrating on our own parts, and you just had to, you know, do your thing. You know, having John go play, you know, and then you do, <laughs> and then you do the thing, and then you play, you know. So, um, but I liked how they, you know, how it was compiled into that really great effect, the dream jars. You know, he did take, John did take on, speaking of the different kinds of projects he does, he did do that, um, sadly, Kobe Bryant's. Um, uh, oh, yes. Entry. Was it Deer Basketball or something? Yes, like that? yes. Did yeah. you play on that too? Yes. And I talked to Kobe quite a bit. Kobe was sitting right next to me during that. And I said, I talked to him and I said, you know, how is this happening? How are you, how is this coming together for you? And he said, he goes, you know, I always love John's music so much. So I asked him if he would do this and he did. And so uh, that was, you know, a nice dream for Kobe to have, you know. In the end yeah, of it is. Yeah. And, and speaking of a special project, you told me that you performed that, you know, at some of the John's, no film projects like the NBC News theme or the theme from the for the Olympics in 1992 and also the 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 album with Yo-Yo Ma and that I guess it was something special again yes and then you know we did another thing with um Annie Sophie Sophie Mutter her oh uh, you, you were on those sessions too yes. wow and that was that was funny because we all the musicians were of course um, you know just thinking she's she is amazing and her energy and her expertise I mean she's just amazing and he also said to her at one point <laughs> we were because we we're all thinking it but then he said it he just paused and stopped and said what did you eat for breakfast <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to eat what you're eating what are you what are you eating for what did you eat for breakfast her her energy level is is insane and he just was he was just taken with how she could do this, you know. Yeah, she, yeah. She 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 looks like he, she's really in love with John's music. Yes. He wrote a a full blown concerto for her, and and then they are keep doing concerts together. They they seem to have found a very special yes. relationship between them. She's at that high level, especially when you have those superstar soloists coming on the stage like Yo Yo Ma or Anne Sophie Mutter or Isaac Berman. You know, John likes to have because they, they are his friends but at the same time i was thinking about all the times that john gave some of you studio players a uh, superstar level <laughs> solo to to perform i mean mm -hmm. do, do, do you remember any specific passage or moment in any of the scores that you play for him that really stands out for you as something you know you you are particularly proud of you know in the the piccolo chair he uses the piccolo as a dramatic color. Mm -hmm. You know, the Jurassic Park stuff, all the high stuff, Star Wars, 
all that high. I mean, that's really how he uses the sh- the shimmering notes. You know, I love the when 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 there's the, you hear the piccolo doing this. It's like um, the, the the magic dust <laughs> over 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 the music because not just the runs and the scales, but it enriches the texture really. Yes, and John knows John knows how to use it. That's why it's so it's so great because he doesn't overuse the piccolo. The piccolo is this certain spice. It's a color. It really can't be used too much because you wouldn't want to be listening to the piece someone's written if there's too much piccolo in it. <laughs> um, but if you really use it properly, it's just like it just puts the color at the top or it puts the drama in the scene or the, you know, whatever. And he really knows how to use, he really knows how to use it. The the performance of E.T. at the shrine was really oh, yes. was a career high. Because I think that was like one of the first times that they were um, doing uh, having, the live to picture, yes, thing. Having yes. Or live with picture, yeah. Now that's become more common, but I think yes. that's one of the first times, right? And, and John conducted it. I mean, it's, oh, yes. it's it was a marathon for him, I guess, <laughs> and for you too. Yeah. All of us to play that score live was very demanding and really exciting. Here's this. I mean, one great cue after the next. But the highlight was that slow, beautiful piccolo solo at the end, you know, playing that after you have played in real time, the movie being shown, everybody pouring their hearts and souls into this film, while John is really capturing what's happening on the screen at the same time. So it's not the same as the recording studio. So that was a very, very meaningful performance. And to have that beautiful piccolo solo at the end, I think was a highlight for me, that's for sure. have a, a very small question about another project that was probably very specific, which is The Patriot, which again, uh, Jim Walker told me that was an entire section of piccolos adding to the orchestra, but because there is this piece that is, I think it's in the end credit of the finale of the movie, where you, you hear this fife and drum echo, yes. and it was all done by an entire section of piccolos. Yes. It was piccolos and also I think we were playing fifes because I remember okay. I remember Phil Ailing was uh and Jim. They used to they put all that together and they we all had we had fifes, a B flat fife, and um which plays, you know, similar in a similar way.
think that probably not many people are knowledge about John, in my opinion, is how a chameleon he is, musically speaking, especially when he writes for the movies. I mean, um, you know, you can recognize his voice, absolutely. But he's very much open to change style or vernacular depending on the requests and the needs of the film. Yes, but he also, and I already think is so uh, such a compliment to him, is I love when I hear Stephen and him and John talking, because we can kind of hear, even when they're whispering, we can still hear <laughs> headphones. And, and, and Stephen saying, yeah, we'll just, cut, we're gonna just gonna cut the film to that piece, because that was so beautiful, you know? So it's just really cool when you hear, you know, the music is so wonderful, Let's move, we'll just fix the movie, you know, we'll cut it. Uh, Stephen really loves to attend the sessions as if he's, it's a concert because he really loves that moment of, you know, making a movie. Stephen has this very childlike spirit in him still today. And and he always brings his own movie camera and film musicians. He has it all. He films us all the time. Stephen, Stephen's always been around and he used to bring his parents too. He always brought his mom and dad, often brought his mom and dad. They would sit up in the front and listen and... You know. And and now things seems to have come full circle in a way because the Fablemans is probably his most personal film yet. The music uh, for that is just profound, and the orchestra has been saying, "What the heck's going on here?" I mean, people are crying at work. His music, literally crying, like we'll play a cue and it's like everyone's frozen and just going, "What did he just write?" And so we do feel. I'm not alone because I get emotional, but I'm not alone. It really across the board that uh, he's he's writing on another plane now and bring us this profound, profoundly deep music. He took all of us to another plane of existence. That score is absolutely so deeply heartfelt. He's writing about Stephen and his his family, and it's a deep place in his heart. Mm, yeah, and well. We heard it. We heard it. Yeah, we heard it. Speaking of family, I want to touch upon your husband, Peter Rudder, uh, oh, yeah. because Peter is the natural heir to a very close collaborator uh, to John Williams, uh, and I'm speaking of uh, Sandy De Crescent, uh, yes. the legendary music contractor that worked for John for so many years, and, and she still does. I mean, uh, but Peter uh, came in in the last years and helped out Sandy and, um, you know, took up her mantle working as a, as a contractor, you know, putting together orchestras of great musicians. And so um, I'd love to, to talk about this aspect because, again, it brings us back to the, to the theme of family, which is kind of an undercurrent theme in our conversation. And Sandy, I know, that is considered by John Williams' uh, family in many ways. Oh. 
backstory is um, I'd been working for Sandy for many years. And one day at a Randy Newman session, she came up to me and said uh, she'd heard that Peter was a composer, but had also been doing some contracting for other composers. And she was looking for someone that could help her with some of her contracting overflow, even though he was still composing. Um, that quickly turned into a larger opportunity and led him um, to covering many sessions. And ultimately, within a short period of time, he became Sandy's partner. Um, it was a very big moment and an honor that she would approach me to ask about him. They worked together for about six years. Then he started bringing in more and more new clients. And when she semi-retired, he went on with his own contracting company and Compass Music Partners. So we are very thankful to her for giving Peter that opportunity in his life and uh, recognizing his skills and this capacity. It's been a major blessing in our lives. So we are indebted to her for many years. Final question I usually ask to my to my guests is, what do you think will be John's legacy in the years to come? I mean, what will be his place? He has reached humans, human beings on all levels and all ages, from young children to elderly. His music speaks to everyone. And it's not so um, complicated that people can't understand it. It's on a heart level and it's also on an intellectual level. So his music reaches people of all ages, of all um, intelligence, of all um, walks of life, everything. He speaks to everyone. That's why the Hollywood Bowl with 18,000 people can be sold out for three nights in a row. That's why when you go there and you see people standing and cheering for him with truly such admiration and joy that they get to be at the Hollywood Bowl watching him and hearing him, that outpouring of love says something. He's reaching people. And it's not just because it's glitzy or because it's, you know, you know, fast. He's reaching and speaking to all of these people of all ages and all walks of life. And I can't, I mean, we can't say that a bit. I mean, I can't think of anyone else that has been able to do that. Yes. He's the perfect blend of heart and mind in music.
Jerry, really, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for this lovely conversation that we had. It's been really a, a joy for me. And, and thank you for, for the marvelous playing that you did over the years. Absolutely. And thank you for inviting me. This is really an honor. Thank you so much, Maurizio. Thank you, Jerry. Grazie. Grazie a te. Ciao. Grazie. Ciao.